Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Jens Heitland Show. This is a special episode where I bring the audio experience from my innovation culture coding live shows back into the Jens Heitland Show. Please enjoy the innovation culture coding audio experience. And we are live. Hello, Klaus. How are you doing? <laughs> Hello, Jens. I'm doing excellent. <laughs> Cool. Let's let's get started. So, be, before we go into the show, a uh, little bit background. Uh, who am I? Uh, my name is Jan Seidlam. I'm the CEO and founder of Heidland Innovation, and started this fantastic show, which is now this is the fifth episode of the Innovation Culture Coding Show. And the in Innovation Culture Coding Show is a window to the world and a window specifically towards the corporate world for independent coaches and consultants who are working in the innovation space. Um, and I really want to feature more. If you are interested in being on the show, please reach out to me. Uh, happy to feature you and get things going. So let's throw a little bit of banner in. So for everyone who is listening or watching it um, live, of course, um, Go to the website heitlandinnovation.com, innovation culture coding or slash innovation culture coding. There you find everything about the other guests and, of course, Klaus, who is the guest today. Klaus, welcome again. Thank you. Thank you again. It's a pleasure having you on the show. I was really looking forward to, to today. It's because it always goes wrong when we talk somehow. And that's, <laughs> that's when the new stuff happens. <laughs> That's that's the prototyping part, being being an innovator. <laughs> but be, be, before we go into the case, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, who are you? What are you doing for a living? And so on. So I guess I'm interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm the director and one of the founders of the College of Extraordinary Experiences, this kind of experience design accelerator some people called it the harvard of experience design and we kind of we like that quote so we use that as much as we can also because then we don't have to explain but it's a it's a hyper intense five-day event that takes place once per year in a castle in poland because that's where things are right and uh, jens has been there once or twice as well so we have we have it backed by interesting and amazing people and i, I think that's one reason why it might be a little bit interesting the second is I'm one of those who crashed a company, ended up in an insane amount of debt, over a million US dollars, and I'm still working my way out of that. So while things are going well, I'm doing interesting stuff, working with amazing people, all that sort of stuff is happening. 
I'm also still not out on the other side. So I'm not yet the good story, but I hope one day to have that good story. It's coming. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> trying at least trying. Yes. So, so this, this is all about featuring innovation coaches and consultants. Tell us about what you're doing in that world. So in that world, I would be remiss if I didn't shamelessly plug the innovation cycle that I wrote with Robert Laszlo Kiss last year, because we figured that innovation is for many people, many organizations, it's this sort of weird territory where you walk into a room and then you innovate and then the world is different. Of course, the reality is tougher than that. So we put together a framework for the whole innovation process that starts with somebody saying, couldn't the world be different? And somebody saying no, and then ending up with actually changing something, a concept, a product, an idea, a company, and coming full circle to somebody else saying, couldn't the world be different? And then somebody else now says, no, it's impossible. So it's part of what I teach. I teach innovation. I teach this playful productivity, this doing things differently while still having fun, I think is my Michi, if we need to have something. Yeah, now, of course, we will put a, a link to the book straight away into the uh, show, show notes and in, into the website. So you will find it and can grab it uh, as much as you want, of course. <laughs> and it, it, in, inside the landing page for Klaus, there's as well a link and a, a kind of funnel towards Klaus. So if you want to engage with him, if you want to hire him, you are welcome to do that. Because that's one, More of, the reasons why we, that's <laughs> one of the reasons why we do this show. For me, it's very, very important to show people working with innovation authentically. And that's the best way to do that is deconstructing a case in a live show. Of course. What else should you do? So Let's, do. Let's go. We, we have discussed a little bit what, what an interesting case could be. We, we're deconstructing or you're deconstructing. I kind of just hosting it. Let's have a look. So we have decided to go with a case, and that's the, that's the case here. A large international corporation is slowly getting disrupted by the technology advancements and fast-moving competition. The management understands the, the need for change, but is not sure how to tackle it. So the executive board looks for solutions and hires Klaus Raster to support the company. As easy as that. <laughs> See, it's, it's that easy, right? So if you're yeah, exactly. like one of these corporations, you you find if you think this is you, then just give me a call. No, but as again, as this is part of the work I do, that sort of situation is where I come in because these things are happening all over the globe and all the time. Yeah. So, so these guys are reaching out to you. How do you start? Let's start from the early, early beginning. Well, I wish I would say the first thing I do is I discuss scope and price so nobody uh, is, is so everybody's on the same page. But of course, that's not how it works. In the real world, there's a lot of loose conversation. There's a lot of maybe I can help. Let's look at this. What do you feel? Blah, blah, blah. I sometimes wish I was a taxi driver and I knew if somebody got into the car, I started the meter. And as long as they were outside the car, the meter is not running. That would be pretty simple. Being a, especially a solo consultant or like a small boutique firm is anything but that. So there are a lot of conversations. They might be with friends. They might be with people I meet somewhere at a conference or or something like that. 
And then slowly some of those conversations become, hey, maybe you could give us a hand or maybe you have a thought on this. And at some point it switches from maybe you have a thought to we'd actually like to engage you. And that in itself is a whole chapter that uh, is dark and twisted with many turns and a lot of heartache, but also fun. And it means I get to talk to a ton of people, some of them where it never gets further than that first conversation where I might share an idea or two, and some of them where it ends up with with years of working together. Yeah. So the board called you. They say, Klaus, please come into the our headquarter, of course. Um How do you start? How do you start with, like it's it's the management board. It's not the people doing it. It's more like the, the people who are deciding on on the budget and so on. So how do you how do you start talking with them? So one of the things that I find to be super useful, but also annoying and sluggish, is whenever I walk into a room where somebody said, "Hey, we should bring on Klaus." There's this expectation that I will come in and produce ideas which is, of course, part of why I'm there. On the other hand, it's pretty hard coming and producing ideas without knowing what's going on. And yeah. while I, of course, move between many different industries, many different spaces, so I have a, a good general feeling when somebody comes in and says, welcome to Aviator, what should we do? Then the first question is like, so what does Aviator do? It sounds like you're an aircraft, but apparently you do shoes. Let's talk about that. But but first of all, there's a discovery phase. There's figuring out what's mm -hmm. there, especially what's there that's not obvious. And that's sometimes tricky. Interviews, deep listening interviews, looking at data, looking at behind the scenes, but especially just talking with some key people, finding out what can I learn? What do I need to know that's not on the website? Because, yeah. of course, I can do my own research, which in these Google days is, of course, I can Google myself. But finding out what's actually at stake, what's needed, what's like, oh, we can't do that because of this tradition that's 20-year-old that's nowhere. That's the first tricky step, finding out what are we even doing. And I find that some simple questions go a long way. One of the ones I, I usually start by asking is what is relevant and important that everybody knows but nobody talks about huh. very simple what are what are we here what are the, the what are the hard truths that we all know you all know and i can learn that nobody talks about is it that the boss will not sign off unless it's her own idea she believes or is it that no matter what it does it can't cost any money or we're not allowed to talk about it or we have to lie to the employees or what's going on what's the stuff that's not obvious Because once you get past that layer, then you can talk about, okay, where do we want to go? What what do we want to do? Why do we want to do it? Where do we want to end up? But just getting through that first surface layer, I find, is sometimes very, very tough, but also super, super interesting. So I guess you do that in an interesting way. That's why I need to dig deeper. So imagine <laughs> it, it's it's a boardroom. It's a boardroom. They're, sit, they're sitting in a round. And and they're saying, and you're asking the the first questions like, hey, okay, so what what's going on? What is not said? What should I know? And nobody's saying anything. How do you get them talking and and really going from the surface level? Yeah, we are all nice and we are not touching anything. And to the level of okay, this is the point where it hurts. So here's what gets funny because one of the things I've, I've encountered a lot of humans and a lot of different kind of 
uh, walks of life, but one of the things I find is almost universal is you ask somebody a question and they say, oh, I don't know, or I can't answer that, or I don't have an idea. And then you say, okay, so is it A or B or more A or B? And then they immediately say, oh, no, no, no. It's more A than B. Simple thing like saying, okay, what sort of timeline do we have here? Oh, but we can't answer that. We can't really say anything about timeline. It's so complex. I say, okay, so are we talking more about two weeks or two hours or two years? And then they laugh and say, well, it's definitely not two years and probably not two hours. Okay, and then you start to to get somewhere. But this, no matter how little people want to talk, as long as you start giving them options, especially if some of the options are ridiculous, I find that then they start engaging. If you go in and say, so what's the biggest pain you have here? What's the what's the number one problem you're trying to solve with this new merger or this new strategy or this new tactic or this new product, this new whatever? And then if they don't say anything, you say, okay, so is it we're trying to get rid of Richard? Like, no, Richard's great. We love Richard. He's been the CEO for, okay, so it's not that. What is it then? Well, maybe it's that. Maybe it's our finance officer. It's our CFO. We, we think he's a problem. Okay, so now we're talking. But giving people giving people ridiculous options makes them come up with real ones. Ironically, I, I found that very, very effective. Yeah, you can imagine be, being in that boardroom just as as a fly on the wall and 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 watching and listening to that. It, it, it would already be fun. <laughs> and and part of it's also just seeing if you don't have a high level of trust in a group. Yeah. And this happens. You come into a boardroom, you come into like a leadership team, and you can feel they don't trust each other. They're not aligned. Things are going to be said that are not true, et cetera. Split them up. Say, okay, this is great. Thank you for this first meeting. Let me just talk to you about my method. The first thing I want to do is do some individual interviews just to get some, some different ideas in different language. Not because you disagree. Of course they do. But because you want to hear from them individually. And then you kind of... Get them out there, and then you talk about what do you like, what you don't like, what do you think should change, what what's what's your biggest problem in your daily job, what do you want to go away, what what's the dream, yeah. and even these simple simple questions, I find you can get pretty far with, but you need to spend some time. Yeah. So you're you're in the boardroom. You you kind of got the nuggets. You split them. You you get more. You build trust. So you get to the the level that you understand, okay, I get a grip of what's going on from a boardroom perspective. So it's still very early. early. You have not talked to anyone else in the total company. What no idea. If I can talk to somebody, that's really nice. But that depends on what transformation they're looking for. If they're yeah. looking for a culture change, if they're open, there are even some people where they'll they'll say, "Oh, but you didn't. You don't need to talk to the people on the floor because they don't have time, and I can tell you anything." Mm -hmm. I really need to talk to the people on the floor. So that sort of thing, and and also there's this simple finding out. One of the things I I do at the beginning is try to push against, find out where the walls are. Yeah. Because no matter where you are, there are walls. People will tell you there are no walls. Everything is wide open. Here's the budget. Here's the scope. Here's the plan. Here's the kind of where we want to go. But everything else is open. Say, okay, great. Then let's do something outrageous. No, 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 we can't do that. Okay. Then let's do something that's just completely normal in other companies, but not in your culture. Oh, we can't do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then let's do something that is 
not even a little risk, but just a tiny different thing. Oh, no, we can't do that. And like, okay, good. Now tell me what can we do? Where do we have an option? A thing that I, that I ask, especially those who are not in the top, top leadership team, those who are not kind of the chairman of the board or the president, whatever, but everybody else is, what is the biggest decision you personally can make without having to ask anybody's permission on Monday? Mm-hmm. In some places, people say, well, I guess I could move the trash can, but I'd have to ask Arthur, who sits in the same office. And some places, like, I can use 100 million euros. I don't have to ask anybody's permission. So finding out what can you actually change, what what kind of scope or mandate is possible with the people you have, because it's very easy. It's very easy when you're working, but it's even easier as a consultant to come in and dream up solutions that aren't going to work. Oh, we just yeah. need to change the entire company, the structure, the name, relocate you to Brazil and change the industry. And then everything will be fine. It's like, mm-hmm, yeah, that's great advice. I wonder why they don't call me back. So finding out what what can we even, what sport are we playing and what are mm-hmm. the rules is the first kind of, the first big phase. Yeah. So then you understand that part. How do you take it forward? So you get the boundaries, you talk to people, you talk to the board, you build the trust and and you kind of get get the non-obvious topics on, on the surface. Then I come to the hard part because then I need to establish that A, they're not bad people, they're not doing anything wrong, but yes, they're doing something wrong. Because if not, then if 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 they were already doing everything right, why would they need me? And yeah, there's a thin yeah. line, and it's sometimes very, very hard, especially with people who bring you in. And, and I, I've been in this situation, and it's, it's uncomfortable, where you're brought in to solve a problem. And whoever brings you in never thinks they're the problem or rarely yeah. thinks they're the problem. And then you're in that meeting, or, or you find out they're part of the problem. Maybe they're even a big part. And then you need to, or I need to, as, a, as an outsider, need to decide, do I try to do what's best for the company and be very honest about it? Or do I kind of try to cover my own bases and suck up to the person who's paying the bills? And there is an easy answer to that. But reality is tough. Of course, we all have this ethic that we should try to be honest and work for the bigger picture and not care about our own egos. On the other hand, it's actually pretty nice to not be kicked out after the first meeting if you feel you can do some change. And while you can tell somebody that they're the problem once or twice in a conversation, you need to give them a little space as well, or else you're just an asshole. Even if you're right, people need to, to kind of soak it in slowly. So that's that's one thing. Is once once I understand what I think could be done, and, and let's remember, I could be wrong. All my ideas, my analysis, my advice, it could be dead wrong because the world's complex. But even if I get to there, I need to figure out how do I package it in a way that is actually kind of that works with the people who are in the room? Yeah. If the CEO asks for advice and I say fire the CEO, that may be uh, really good, but most CEOs will say, "Yeah, get me a new consultant." <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So, so are you then going in with your ideas and share your ideas or do you kind of bring your ideas into their discovery and they come up with your ideas or will you trigger them with your ideas? How, how are you doing that? I don't listen to them at all. I know, but no, of course not. Of course not. No, I'm, I'm a huge fan of co-creation. I'm a huge fan of finance. Also because 
how the hell would I know what's best for them? If I come in and it's a company that has been doing creating medical supplies for the French market since the 80s, and I come in and after one week I say, I know everything, then I'm not just an idiot, I'm also probably wrong. So trying to find out what's there, trying to, to kind of get people to come out with their wisdom, their ideas, their nuggets, and then putting some of my own spin on some of them. But I think what I do most is I try to sell my, not methodology, but my kind of conceptual way of thinking. And what I mean yeah. by that is, is sometimes when some change happens, there is an idea that if something changes, you should just tell people it's changed and then get them to go back to work. Sending an email saying, hi, the world is now different. You now work in South Africa. Goodbye is seen as kind of, okay, then you've taken care of the change. Everything's fine now. And I think in general that if you want people to be engaged in change, if you want them to see the positive side, it's much better getting them to talk about it, to, to express it, to think about it, than just coming in and saying, here's the truth. And then yeah. putting that in, I usually say that if you want people to talk about company values, get them to bake a cake. Because if you just come in and tell them about here are our new company values, then nobody's going to remember tomorrow. But if you get them to bake a cake expressing those company values, then they'll spend a ton of time finding out what does that mean? How do we express that if they like baking cakes? If they don't like baking cakes, then it's a really bad idea. But getting people to do something that interests them where the new information or the new strategy, culture, whatever, is part of that, is part of kind of makes, gives them ownership and empowers them instead of just coming in, delivering and saying, yeah, here's how it is. You are now a robot in a machine. Goodbye. If you have problems, call HR. <laughs> that might have been good enough at one point, but the world is too complex and also too interesting for it to work anymore. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have the beauty of have been working with you as a consultant when I was still in the corporate. That's already a couple of years ago. But one thing I liked very much being in the corporate seat um, that you put things on the table. So it's not, let's say, I have worked as well with very, very large consultancies, the obvious ones, um, and they're not putting the things on the table in the way you would ever do. So you're, you have been very explicit as well, putting the, like the elephant in the room, everyone is feeling it and you are talking about it. How, yes. how, how do you use that as a strategy? I just, I want to, I want to highlight it because it's so different to what I have seen uh, with a lot of other big consultancies spe specifically. They would never do that. It's because <laughs> I've been told by good friends with, uh, interesting consulting jobs and longer careers that it's a very bad tactic. Yeah. And part of it is because this reality that, that and I, I think we shouldn't underestimate this. And I, I talk about the elephant in the room that on one hand, as a consultant, you come in and you really want to change things. You want to solve the problem or help the people or fix the world, boost the bottom line, maybe all of this at once. And then you meet the people. And the people are just humans, just like yourself. They have egos, they have careers, they have ideas, they have biases. And a lot of the time, those are a problem. Hmm. And if you can't call that out, you have less chance 
of making the magic, of fixing the thing, of doing the work. On the other hand, if you do call that out, you have a much better chance of getting shown the door or just being told, uh, I'm not interested in your change. And if you're the boss of somebody, then even if they don't like you, there is a chance where you can say, well, I heard what you're saying, but we're doing it anyway. When you're a consultant, you have no power. You come in and you say, okay, do this, this, and this, and everybody will be happy. And then somebody says, I don't like you because you have long hair. It's like, okay, <laughs> well, I could cut my hair for you, but I feel that might not solve the problem. And, and this sort of addressing the elephant in the room, I, I do that a lot. And I find that it gives me very good results, but it also sometimes makes me enemies where I don't need to have them. It makes people pissed off because while we're told you shouldn't shoot the messenger, well, if you can't, if you're the problem, then it's really nice to shoot the messenger. Somebody coming in and saying, you guys don't know what you're doing. Here, 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 and here, and here is why it's completely crazy what you're doing. And you need to fix that before we deal with the thing that you've hired me for. I, I sometimes compare it to, imagine that you call the, your local pizzeria and you want to order a number 14 with extra cheese. And then the guy says, Jens, I can make you that pizza, but what you really need is to start eating more healthily. And then there's a good chance you'll say, hey, pizza guy, how about you make the pizza and shut up about my health? Or yeah. more, what's more realistic is you say, you don't need to worry about my health. Also, you don't need to worry about the pizza. And then you call the next pizzeria. And then maybe after you've called five or six of them and they all say, dear sir, you're in too bad health that we want to sell to you, but we'll help you with dietary tips. Then maybe you're thinking, huh, maybe I should call a dietitian instead. Mm -hmm. But usually when people call you in as a consultant or call me in, they have an idea what the problem is. Yeah. And sometimes that's the problem. Everybody's happy. Sometimes it's very, very different. I remember on the thing we did together uh, in this, uh, your big corporate past, one, one of the things at least, where it was about bringing people from different countries to exchange ideas and learn different things. And one of the things we noted when we came from the outside and helped do this event with 100 people from different countries, that sure, they were at the same three-day event, but they weren't even speaking the same language. So one group would sit in one place and speak one language, another would sit in another place and speak another language. So all this beautiful time between the program items, all this kind of socializing time where it was believed that here's where the wisdom will flow from one division to another. Well, how is it going to if they're not even speaking the same language? And I may have, may or may not have stood in front of a hundred people and told them that they were idiots and I would fire most of them. And some people liked that. Some were very happy and said, we needed to hear that. But there were also those who came and said, you're an idiot. I will never hire you for anything again. Luckily, there were most of the first group, but, but it's still not everybody likes to be told about the elephant in the room, even if they hire you and say, we want to hear about the elephant in the room because we're human. Yes. So let's, let's give the, the people watching it live a little bit of attention as well. So everyone mm -hmm. um, watching it live, if you are having questions to Klaus or to me around the topic of um, there's a company that is disrupted and Klaus is 
helping them to transform. If you have any question around that topic, shoot them in the in the in the text. I was about to say in the chat. Um, shoot it them works. In the it, it, it works definitely if you're on Facebook or YouTube. I'm not sure about LinkedIn, but I guess it works there as well. And if you want as well, shoot us um, a hello. You're welcome to do that as well. Hello um, or where you come from. Always happy to get a little bit of messages flowing. But meanwhile, we go, go further. There is already something. <laughs> is there something? Day, David, how, how could anyone not like your long hair, Klaus? Yeah, I don't get it as well. So it seems like LinkedIn is working as well. Thanks, David. It's great to great to have you. <laughs> I ask myself that question as well, David. But the reality is that some places, and if we kind of if we leave the jokes aside for a moment, I don't look like a typical management consultant. And sometimes that's a huge strength because the moment I walk into a room, there are people who are ready to accept something different. This happens especially when I work with McKinsey. I'm, I'm a coach at consulting company McKinsey and do work with them on a project-per-project project basis. And when I arrive, I don't look like the rest of the team. And that's a strength, but sometimes it's also a weakness because if they're expecting one thing and they're getting another, then they can say, ooh, this is exactly what we want, or ooh, we were looking for something different. Now, of course, the McKinsey teams I work with, they're smart enough not to bring me in unless the client wants something different or something that I can help with. But this does happen in kind of in 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 any profession. You hire somebody to fix your teeth and they come in with a hammer and then you start worrying. And they say, oh, but it's a new form of dentistry. Then you start worrying a lot. And maybe you don't even let them try because you're so convinced that you're right about what dentistry is that you never got to experience the new mind-blowing, he's going to hammer the floor so it vibrates your teeth in a way that fixes them method. You're just going to see the hammer and think, I don't want that near my teeth. And, and I get that. I get that. I, I would probably do that at the dentist myself. These are the best stories ever. Like going going from a boardroom to a dentist with a hammer. <laughs> let, let let's let's loop us back. So for those who are watching, um, feel free to share this wherever you want. Because as more you share it, as more you like it, as more you engage with us, as more people will see it, and as more people will see the amazing coaches of this show and consultants of this show, and of course the amazing Klaus. <laughs> let's and the amazing <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's get back to the case. So a company is getting slowly disrupted by technology advan advancements and the competition. And the management understands that they need to do something and hiring you. So you have started out going into the boardroom, talking to the board members, building trust, um, talking about not the obvious topics, understanding what is what is what are the things they're not talking about. Um, then, of course, you, you mentioned that you go a little bit into discovery, understanding what's what's going on in the company, understanding what people are saying, talking to more people, um, trying and to figure out what the boundaries are, where you kind of you push a little bit the boundaries to figure out what's working, what's not working. Are they really willing to do the things they're saying? So all that topics. Um, 
who can take big decisions, who cannot, how are people structured from that perspective? And then you go more. So after you have done that, you go into, okay, how do we solve this? We now have a picture. Let's, let's figure it out. Then you do like different things, co-creation, ideation. You talked about, you bake a cake together with them, uh, where it's more about enabling them to do, to do it themselves, figuring it out themselves and do it in a way they like. Um, and then we talked about the elephant in the room and that that's for, if, if I remember back like a couple of years when we have worked together, you did that inside the ideation part or kind of inside the experience part. It was not on, Hey, we know exactly what we are going to do and, and how we solve it. It was still in the part where it was messy. Yes. So, yes. Letting in the mess. I think that's a good, a good place to start is that everybody knows that when you are doing something new, it's probably going to be chaotic and messy and things aren't going to work out and there's going to be some wasted energy and oops, we tried this and that didn't go there. And yet we all like smooth processes. We like things that are efficient. We like things that make sense that don't kind of, that don't waste energy or time or frustration. And, and there's a quote by one of my big heroes, the advertising guru, Rory Sutherland, who says, sometimes you need to climb stupid hill to get to Mount Reasonable. He says something like that. And it's very often that the weird stuff, the idiotic stuff, the random conversations will not necessarily in themselves be valuable, but they will lead to somebody saying, oh, oh, wait a minute, why don't we do this? Or hmm. have we tried this or could we do that? So one of, the, one of the things I try to do is to get people in the mood where they're open to thinking not just about the obvious solutions, but the non-obvious ones and perhaps even the non-thinkable ones. The second thing I try to do is to get them to understand innovation readiness. So roughly speaking, there are three stages of companies or three stages of where people are. It doesn't matter if it's companies or people, but it's easier to understand with companies is stage. Number one is you're desperate. Everything's falling apart. Money's going out the door. Your customers are leaving. The citizens are in trouble. You know that things are going bad. Hmm. Everyone is willing to experiment there. When the Titanic is sinking, you're willing to try a new something new. Somebody says, you can float on this lawn chair if you just position it right. Okay, the alternative is death in the icy waters, so let me give it a shot. We're, we're innovative when we're desperate. We have yeah. to be. It's the burning platform. Consultants have been talking about this for years. It works. It's also exhausting, terrifying, and stressful. So it's not nice, but it does work. It also works in our private lives. Oh, Mr. Klaus, you are fat and you need to exercise or you will die in six months. whoop de doo Who's now running marathons? When we're desperate, we're innovative. On the other end of the spectrum, we're also in innovative when we feel invulnerable, when we feel like we are so invincible that we can do anything and it won't be a problem. Hmm. It's Google. Oh, we're, we're, our core business is so strong that we're just throwing out millions and billions on ideas and maybe they work, maybe they don't. But if they don't, there's more where it's coming from. It's that annoying couple you know, who has four kids, they're in great shape, 
they have brilliant careers. And then when they come to the couple's dinner, you're organizing, they're like, oh, but me and Jessica just took up ballroom dancing on Thursdays because we wanted to spice up our life a little bit. And you hate those people, but you secretly want to be them because they come from a place of invulnerability, a place of surplus, of abundance. And that also leads to innovation. Now, the rest of us, companies, people, we're stuck somewhere in the middle. Somebody comes and says, Klaus, I can change your life. I can change your business. I can make you a better boyfriend, a better father, a better, all these sorts of things. And my answer will be, that sounds great, but I don't have time. I'm busy. I have a meeting. I can't afford it. I can't take the time out. All these sorts of crazy things that even if it's somebody you trust, I agree, somebody, it's, we're not talking about Nigerian scam letters here. It's not like, dear Mr. Klaus, I will solve your problems. Just send the monies. <laughs> the accent was not Nigerian at all, but let that pass for a moment. It's the people, even if we trust them, we're not willing to risk a lot of our time, of our energy, because we don't have that surplus and we're not yet desperate. When people start getting more desperate, then they might say, oh, okay, now we can see we're not really desperate yet, but we can see we might need to change down the line. And then they start doing stuff or they start getting into a place of more surplus, of more abundance. Then they start having Innovation Tuesdays or they create an innovation micro department where we take chances and have fun. But as long as you're stuck in that middle, whether it's personally or professionally, then nothing's going to happen. And getting people to understand those two things. One is let's actually do things because you need to have innovation readiness. You need to, you need to create that abundance or that desperation inside of a company. Mm. And you could do that. That's one of the things that happens whenever a couple has kids. Classic example. Jens and I are both fathers of uh, quite young children. So we've been through this recently and are still kind of in this process. What happens is you have one of these small kids and suddenly you have no life, you have no time, you have no sleep. And then you look at each other and you say, okay, let me take care tonight and then you get some sleep and you'll be able to function tomorrow. You deliberately sacrifice yourself for the team or you force your partner to do it. Uh, same result. And then one of you can exist the day after. If you, did, if you didn't have any innovation readiness, you would just say, Let's divide the sleep evenly so it's fair. And then tomorrow we'll both be dead tired and it'll be worse the day after. So what we do instead is we create, for one person, we create a sense of desperation. And believe me, this is a sense of desperation. But that allows the other person to get some extra resources, some abundance to do things. And you can do that in a company. You can do that in an organization. So that's one thing I look for is where can we create pockets of invulnerability and pockets of self-chosen desperation. That's yeah. a that's a really strong place to look if you can get access to that. Maybe you can't. Maybe it's not on the menu, but if you can look at that, if you can create that innovation readiness, that's that's a thing I try to do because there's immense power in that. Yeah. Little shout out to, to JL. Welcome back. We have been joining us last week as well. And yeah, no risk, no fun. Uh, no, no risk, no success. Not fun. Um, yeah, you can have lots of fun, but at some point, <laughs> it gets very risky. The fun. 
as well for everyone else watching, I see there are quite some people watching. Shoot us a, a hello at where you come from, uh, where you watch this. Uh, if you have any questions to Klaus on how to solve corporate dilemmas or disruptions and so on, or anything else you want to share, um, sh shout out to us. So innovation readiness, you get them into the desperate state or desirable state. Yes. Um, and hopefully they agree. Everybody wants to be in the invulnerable stage. Everybody wants to be Google. But usually if we see the vision, if we see the purpose, if we kind of feel part of the team, then we're ready to come and say, you know what? I'm I'm ready. I, I get this. And yeah. I have a story of a friend. And sadly, he was stopped by his boss. But we talked about it. He said, hey, Klaus, I like some new ideas. I'm like the – I'm uh, the – uh, chief marketing officer of a big international company. I have a budget of 90 million euros per year, something like that. Now I think they're going to slash my budget to 70. Do you have any ideas? And we had this talk and I said, if you go to them and you say, you're you're pulling me down to 70, you're pulling me out of the invulnerable zone. You're pulling me out of like the, the sweet spot where it's just, oh, we've got money left over. Let's try it. And say, if you're putting us down to 70, put us all the way down to 30 instead. Because then we'll force ourselves to do things new ways. If we get 70, we'll just stop taking risks. We'll just use them on media buys and on the standard campaigns, and we'll, we'll stop innovating. We'll just produce. But if you take us down to 30, you will force us, and we will force each other to actually do things differently. And then those 40 that we don't get, somebody else can get them. And then suddenly that will put them in this the desirable, the, the prime state of like, wow, we've now got resources. And he was ready to take that message to his international company and be on stage and say, I'm asking for 40 million euros less for this year. Because he got it. He believed it. And his bots said no. That's fun. So they, they could have saved 40 million euros. They could. And the wild part was, he was certain that even at 30, they would have made it work somehow. They would have done it differently. They would have made it work somehow. It wouldn't have crashed them. And I think that's the, the critical thing is you need to be desperate enough that you change, but not desperate enough that it kills you not to. It's when you're training parkour, it's good to learn to jump from house to house uh, in, in, when you're kind of on the ground instead of where you might hurt yourself a little but not like, oh, first jump, let's jump from the 16th floor to the 17th. Oh, that failed, bam, dumb. That's maybe not the way to do it. So I'm not saying take insane risks all the time. I'm saying find out how can you get to a place where you actually make change. And I think that's the third of my spiels is it's very easy, and I fall into this trap myself, it's very easy to talk about change on a conceptual level. Yeah. Very easy yeah. to talk about these abstracts. But at the end of the day, somebody needs to move a box. Somebody needs to sit in a, move, in a meeting, walk through a door, post something on, send a mail, hit some numbers, do something. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard sometimes to go from this, what's the abstract, the conceptual, to what does it actually mean? And I find that if you don't make that link, if you don't, get that mindset working for people, then you can have everybody agreeing on the concept, but nothing changes. 
Yeah. Where it's pretty simple. Yeah. If you want to lose weight, then conceptually you want to get in better shape. In kind of what do you actually do is well, you you start running every morning. Okay. But if you if you get conceptually in better shape every day without doing anything different, then it's not really going to work out. And and in our normal lives, we understand this. Nobody's that stupid in, in their normal lives. But in our professional lives, holy smoke, the amount of like, oh, but we're now a lean, purpose-driven organization. Okay, but what changed in the day-to-day? -day? Oh, nothing. What? It's written on the wall. It's written on the exactly. It's written on the wall. So let let let's let's take it apart again. So starting from engaging with the board, you go into the non-obvious, the dreams, build trust, talk to all the people, understand the boundaries. Who can take bigger decisions? You go into co-creation. You go into getting them understanding the innovation readiness. And then you kind of take them from that desire to do something into action. Then we do stuff. And the stuff as small as possible, as fast as possible, and as big potential as possible. How, how do you help them? I, I want to dig deeper into that because I know yeah. that, that, that you help them from a strategic level, but as well on, on like doing level. Yes. Which yes. not not every consultant is doing that. Some are just working with strategic topics. Some are just working with the sprints topic. So, how, how do you help them on the action level? So, on the action level, getting somebody on the action level is usually about just sitting down with them and looking at one process. Maybe it's the automated sales mail that they send out. Maybe it's the way they pack their vans. Maybe it's the way they do a meeting, their stand-up meeting every Monday morning, but something that is like, that you can dig your claws into, that's not like a piece of strategy, but is an actual thing, event, action that happens, and then say, let's do it differently. Mm. Let's today, let's do it in the forest, or let's not pack the van, <laughs> or let's have them come to us, or let's put the chairs differently. There, there are three things that I do very often that anyone can do. So I'm going to name them here, of course. One is when you are, whenever you're in a meeting, whenever you're doing something with more than one person, you can change the room. Of course, you can change the room if you're one person, but this is an, an undervalued thing. Spend a little bit of time changing the room. Move around the furniture. Put in some plants. Walk to a different space. Do something so the room is different. In corporations, there's so much time spent in these rooms that are just not human. They're efficient. They look like something out of an American TV show. They're probably expensive. They're designed by somebody who would never sit in that room uh, if they could help it. Just put in a plant. Grab in. Take a sofa. Rearrange things. Make it a little bit chaotic. Make it a little bit human. Change the space. Hmm. One thing you can do, whatever you work with, change the space until it becomes human and nice. Number two is you can change the rules. You can change the rules of a thing. Just opening a meeting by saying, in this meeting, we're not going to talk about the budget at all. Or in this meeting, we're only going to talk about the budget. Does a different. There's a different. You can do a simple thing, and this is one of the things we sometimes do, is saying, 
right now, the, the classic brainstorm phase, you're not supposed to say no to anything. You're just supposed to say yes, but actually doing that, actually saying in this phase, we want ideas. We don't want comments. You are not allowed to comment on other people's ideas. This simple rule, say that at the start of meeting and you'll see, I mean, you've been there, you do this, you know this, but for our listeners, try that in a meeting, say, we're now trying to come up with ideas. So when somebody comes with an idea, you're not allowed to discuss it. You're not allowed to have an opinion about it. You're only allowed to say, cool, I have an idea, or that makes me think of, or maybe you just nod your head and then you come up with the next idea. You can change the rules of how we interact. And thirdly, you can change the roles. One of the things I, I sometimes try to teach teams is instead of having a boss that is kind of the one who decides everything in a meeting, then have the boss be the one who kind of, who's the playmaker, who says, oh, that's a great question, customer. Our creative chief will have an answer for that or, what do the numbers say? Or can we look at it differently? But instead of going in and saying, no, 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 no. What my less qualified team member meant was, because this happens all the time, and it's not super motivating. But these simple, change the space, change the rules, change the roles. Yeah. Just that sort of thing. Just to get people, do it small. Just try one simple meeting. Because once you've done it with one meeting, then people will either say, okay, this sucked. Let's do something else. Or they'll say, oh, now we're open to stuff. Now we can try things. Oh, I could do this. And then it can start spreading. So I'm, I'm a huge proponent of small change. And now we have a visitor. Hello, Sega. <laughs> For example, this is a good example. What if people stopped apologizing for their kids coming into their meetings? What if yeah. they just said, hello, we have a visitor? Some people are going to hate it. They're going to think you're the most unprofessional human being. I understand why you have long hair. Never hire you. And others will say, oh, how endearing, how human, how nice. Why do we have to be so afraid of our kids? Because we all like them. This guy seems nice. Let me hire him. It's the small stuff. So I'd say change things experiment and then if it doesn't work well then next time lock the door <laughs> like i do exactly she has been in here a couple of times as well <laughs> because you're smart saga is also somewhat <laughs> trained and right now in a in a quite good mood sometimes it'll be like oh i'm gonna unplug the the microphone again yeah. then we have it in our one-on-one -on -one conversation which was not live <laughs> Yes, exactly. So yeah. let let's let's get into. So you're you're helping them with actions, getting into prototyping, really helping them to do that. So then it's kind of I want I want to end with the part of. Of course, you are helping them until they have figured it out, or until they say thank you very much, close. It was enough. You are getting too expensive. Whatever they do that. happens first. They do that early. Yeah. <laughs> so. To, to that point, a lot of companies want to have, like, they want to solve it today. Yeah. What, what is your experience specifically with, like, this transformational project um, on how long it takes and how, how, how much they need to change to be able to get that transformation? There's actually something really weird going on there. 
And that is that, and this is of course just my experience. So it might be completely not backed by statistics, but what I've come across, not everywhere, but too often is companies start by saying, we want the change tomorrow because we're in a hurry. And then when you say, I can make the change in a week, they say, you're not serious. You're incompetent. We don't think it could be done in less than six months. And then I say, okay, great. How about we make a plan for six months? They say, no, we need a plan for a week. Did you hear us? And I'm like, okay, guys, I don't really know what you mean. So I try as much as I can to get the client to tell me what they've already decided is possible. When I used to do events, I would always ask from the beginning, what are the decisions that have already been made? And then they would always say things like, oh, no, but nothing's been decided yet. Okay, so the date's not decided. Oh, yeah, 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 that's decided. Okay, so we could do it in the evening. No, 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 it's from 11 to 2. Okay, so the length is decided. Okay, so how many are we doing it for? Oh, that's not decided. Okay, so we could invite 500 people. No, no, it'll be the people from the red team. Okay, so that's decided. And this kind of exploratory, and and here you should be less arrogant about it than I just have been right now, but this finding out what decisions have they already made, what truths have they already decided? Have they decided that this will take three months or this cannot take more than a week? Or have they decided both at once? which is sometimes the case. Because if the moment you start, you can give people alternatives to what they're thinking. That's fair enough. That's what they hire you for. That's very much with me, what I get hired for. But it needs to be something that fits within their perceived reality. And if I come in and say, you can solve all your problems with one event for one hour, they're they're not going to believe me. It's also probably not going to be true. On the other hand, if I say, well, this... So you want to be a master storyteller? Well, it's taken me 25 years, and I'm kind of decent. So maybe let's not just do a two-hour course. And then they say, ah, a three-hour course then. <laughs> so find out find out where people are so you can work within the boundaries of that. If not, yeah. then, then, then you're going to be suggesting things that may be very true, very good, very nice, but just don't really fit the spectrum. And that's, I guess, to to go full circle, that's what you clarify in the beginning as well. Maybe not if like the can. first first meeting, but like as early as possible. Yes. And and but yeah. you need to do that continuously. Like now trying to turn off the TV and finding out she cannot be a disruptor. You cannot be a saboteur. <laughs> We're gonna remove the real remote. So you need to do this continually. Because, of yeah. course, you do it in the first meeting, and then you do it later, and then you find out every time you're doing something, there will be these preconceptions or, or decisions that have been made or truths that are agreed on that you need mm-hmm. to find out. And some of them will be things you agree with already, like, oh, okay, so it is not free to rent trucks. Got it. We agree on that one. And others will be things like, oh, but you cannot have a meeting at 4 o'clock because nobody will attend. What, what, yeah. what if we tell them it's important? It can't be done. Well, can we discuss this? And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Yeah. David says, yeah, going to extremes mind trick. Yes. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, it's definitely one of the Yeti Jedi 
Trace uh, Klaus is using. I agree. <laughs> did you just hit me in the face with the remote? <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> so, last part I always ask we're, is dream client. Who and can you describe your dream client to us? Yes. My dream client is Jens Heitland some years ago. And ironically, that's true. Because one thing you did when you pulled us in and, and we were, I was part of the team there, you said, I trust you guys. Tell me what roadblocks you need to clear. I didn't hire you so I could micromanage you. I hired you so you could make me uncomfortable, but I could trust you that it would be worth it. Hmm. And that, that to me is a dream client. It's somebody who says, I'm hiring you because you can do something I can't or won't. And I might not even understand it. And I might be uncomfortable myself, but I mm -hmm. still trust you. So tell me what to do. Tell me how to, to make this work. That is for me, that's the best client I can get is somebody who doesn't try to, who, who, somebody who doesn't try to, remake me in an image they have of me, but just lets me loose. And yeah. trust me that they might not understand it, but they trust it's going to go in a good place. And I know that's a lot to ask, but but that's the, the dream client. Oh, and if of course they have a huge problem and a lot of money, that doesn't hurt, right? But, but at the end of the day, the dream client is more about how they are to work with than whether it's Disney or it's your uncle's startup. Yeah, yeah, super love that. We're we're approach, approaching the end, um, so we need to do a little shout out to the show sponsor, which yes. is to today our show sponsor. If I find the banner, oh, that's the wrong one. It's a great show sponsor. Yeah, where do we, where is it? Uh, ah, here it is. So today's sponsor is the College of Extraordinary Experiences. And of course, you will find the link to the college on our website, which is the highlandinnovation.com slash innovation culture coding, where you will find all coaches who uh, coaches and consultants who have been on the show and all coaches and consultants who will be on the show. There's a list of about, I don't know, like six, seven, eight people who are already listed for the next couple of weeks and some exciting people coming where we don't have a date yet, but they're also listed as some of them at least. And it's going to be great, as great as it was today. So having said that, Klaus, any departing words from your side? <laughs> <laughs> I think that if I can give one piece of advice, just one. I prefer to give more, but if I can give just one piece of advice to consultants, coaches out there who are working with clients, whether big or small, it's that once you get them to accept that trying out stuff that won't kill them is actually possible, not just theoretically possible, but actually possible. Once you can get them over that hurdle, and that's a huge hurdle, you can get them from saying, yes, it's a good idea, but we're not going to do it, to I don't know if it's a good idea, but let's try it. If you can get them past that, 
then you will have strong allies because anything then be or everything then becomes a let's try it instead of let's talk it to death. And in the complex world we live in, the less time we spent the less time we spend on going from A to B, the more we actually use the world as it is. There was a time when you could do three years of research and then put something out there, a product, a concept, an idea. Now, three years later, the world will have changed. Imagine going to a big company in the fall of 2019 and yeah. saying, imagine you are you were the, the chief marketing officer of Delta Airlines in the fall of 2019. And you went to your leadership and they said, so Paul, what are your predictions? What do you think what's going to happen? You say, well, guys, as I see it, we're going to be at like 5% of our, we're going to have 5% of what we usually sell in a year. Not only would you be laughed at or ridiculed, they would say things like, how can you even suggest that? Numbers don't lie. And then Paul would say, well, I mean, if something crazy happened, it might go my way. And they'd say, but the numbers don't lie, Paul. The truth is numbers don't lie, but they're not always useful unless yesterday is like tomorrow. What is always useful is trying out new stuff and finding out if it works. And the faster you try it out, the faster you find out if it doesn't work. That's a great ending. Klaus, thank you very much for your time today as well. Thank you to Saga be, being cheerleading a little bit in, in between. Um, it was a pleasure having you on the show and really looking forward to, to find a couple of clients for you. So anyone who is interested in engaging with Klaus, of course, go to the website, which is heightlandinnovation.com slash innovation culture coding in one word. And... There, there you can find all about Klaus um, and as well the book, which we ha he has mentioned in, in the beginning. So the book will be available there through a link as well. Not today, but latest tomorrow. <laughs> Super, Klaus. Thank you very much uh, for being on the show and see you somewhere else. Everyone, see you next Tuesday already on the next show. Thanks and see you. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You will find the links and resources in the show notes of this episode. If you would like to support the podcast, the most impactful thing you can do is subscribing to the show on any of the podcasting platforms and give me a review. This will help me to reach more innovators around the world and bring some of you into the show. If you have any question to the guest or want to engage with me, feel free to reach out to me on my public WhatsApp at plus four nine one five one seven zero three three one one seven six i will repeat plus four nine one five one seven zero three three one one seven six it's all whatsapp texting only or follow me on social media and contact me there and finally if you look for someone educating you or your team on innovation culture coaching have a look at heightlandinnovation.com. Thanks and see you in the next episode.